Mar- hey, Markel, did you do that to me? You set me up, bro. Hallelujah. Thank you, musicians and singers. We appreciate that. We're working on our own in the back, Children's Church. We're just getting started believing God for miracles. We're going to have our own song service back there. So you pray for us. Praise God. Nehemiah chapter 13, if you have your Bible with you tonight. Nehemiah chapter 13. Hallelujah. I want to preach a simple message tonight that I've entitled Blueprint for Lasting Change. So before I read the text tonight, I have to give a little bit of background with the book of Nehemiah because it's important to understand what leads up to the events that unfold in our text to really uh, fully grasp this blueprint for lasting change we're going to be looking at tonight. So some history about the children of Israel. They had been carried away into captivity because of their sin and their rebellion against God, their refusal to submit to God's standards of righteousness and the Sabbath and honoring God and tithes and all the commandments God had laid out for them, they rebelled against those and eventually ended up being judged for that sin and were carried away into captivity for a period of 70 years in Babylon. Initially, eventually became Assyria as as Babylon was conquered. But 70 years of judgment, the children of Israel were carried away from the promised land and had to live in servitude. At the end of that period of time, the opportunity came for the children of Israel to once again go back into the land of Israel, the promised land, the land that God had called them to. And this happened in a few waves. The first wave led by Zerubbabel. He was commissioned by Cyrus to go back, the king of Persia, to go back into the land of Israel, into Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple there. And 40,000 or so uh, children of Israel went with Zerubbabel and undertook this, uh, this massive project and undertaking, but eventually they did succeed in erecting the temple so that the people of God could once again be established in the land and begin to worship God there. There was a second wave of people led by Ezra the priest. That probably was about 60 years after Zerubbabel. So this wasn't just, you know, back-to-back groups of people coming in waves. This was 60 years separated between these two waves of people. And then there was a third wave led by Nehemiah. Specifically, Nehemiah led this group of people into Jerusalem with the express purpose of rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And what's amazing to me, just to stop and pause right here, is you think about in spite of the opportunity for the children of Israel to return back from the land of captivity into the promised land, into the land that God had called them to inhabit and to establish God's kingdom, In spite of the opportunity to do that, it's striking how few actually did. And you think about why. Why is that? They had gotten comfortable in Babylon. They had adapted to life outside of God's promised land, and they were comfortable now. They weren't interested in the sacrifice that it was going to take to go back to the promised land. They were more interested in their own comfort and their own desires rather than what God wanted for them. And this is a whole sermon in itself, and I'll leave that alone right there. 
For my message tonight, what I want to focus on is this third wave of exiles coming back to the promised land with Nehemiah and his efforts to reestablish the, uh, the people of God in the promised land. And as I was writing this sermon and just thinking through and meditating upon all these scriptures and all the events that unfold throughout the book of Nehemiah and through the life of Nehemiah, this sermon was just mushrooming and growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And I got to about 40 pages and said, you know, this is probably not going to work. <laughs> now, I didn't get quite that big, but, but I had to regroup and I had to basically set that whole, uh, you know, year-long series aside and say, I need to focus on specifically what God spoke to me at prayer meeting a few days ago. And it deals with a very small portion of text. And before I read that, I want to, again, I'm laying the groundwork for understanding what leads up to this text. So Nehemiah led this group of people into the promised land with the purpose of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. The reason that's important is because in those days, that was the only way you could have a safe society. That was the only way you could establish a dwelling place where people would come and want to live and feel safe and protected and be able to establish any kind of civilization as if you had walls of protection around the city. And, Jer and Nehemiah heard that these walls had been broken down and he was smitten by that and went back to see these walls rebuilt. And as you read the account of his leadership in seeing this come to pass, it is remarkable the leadership that Nehemiah demonstrated and what he was able to inspire these people to accomplish. They faced all kinds of opposition, all kinds of strategies from the enemies of God's people that were aimed at stopping this work. They were aimed at shutting down their efforts to rebuild these walls and reestablish the people of God in the promised land. But in spite of all that opposition... Nehemiah saw the hand of God's blessing upon his efforts, and they were able to complete building the wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. 52 days for a massive construction project like that. They've been working on the loop over here for 700 plus days, and they're still not done. 52 days they built walls all the way around Jerusalem. That tells you this was a miracle of God. God was involved in this endeavor. And in addition to completing this building project, not only that, but Nehemiah was able to lead the people of God into an incredible revival. He was able to inspire the people of God to recommit themselves to serving God with all of their hearts, to recommit themselves to honoring God on the Sabbath, to honoring God with the tithe, to honoring God with their worship and with their lives. And after this tremendous time of success and prosperity with the work of God, eventually Nehemiah reached the place where he had to go back to Assyria to his position with the king, Artaxerxes. I think that's how you say it. That's fun to say. Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah goes back, he takes up his position serving in that, that king's uh, domain there, and he is back 
in Assyria, serving in that position for a period of about 12 years. And then he decides he's going to come back and see how things are going. He wants to come back and see how the work of God has continued in his absence. And as soon as he arrives, he is immediately greeted with the reality that major issues have developed amongst the people of God. They had problems in their finances. They were no longer honoring God with tithes and offerings. They were no longer providing for the house of God. There were problems in honoring God and keeping the Sabbath. There were problems with relationships. The children of Israel were intermarrying with the pagans around them, which God explicitly said not to do. All three of these issues had crept back into the regular life of the children of Israel in these 12 years since Nehemiah left. And what's amazing is Nehemiah had specifically dealt with them about all three of these issues. And all of these same people had made personal commitments and covenants to say, we will not do those things. We will honor God with the tithe. We will keep the Sabbath. We will not intermarry. They had committed to all three of those things. And yet Nehemiah comes back after 12 years and finds that all of that has been dropped. That has all gone by the wayside. So for my message tonight, I want to focus on how Nehemiah handles this. And specifically, we're only going to look at how he dealt with the issue of the Sabbath and the honoring and keeping of the Sabbath. But the blueprint that we see, the pattern that we see in how Nehemiah dealt with that specific issue, you see the exact same thing applied to the other two areas, but really the purpose for this message is you can take that pattern and that blueprint and you can apply it to every area of life. So let's read our text now, Nehemiah 13, looking at verses 15 through 22. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I like that. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. 
Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. I want to begin tonight looking at Houston, we have a problem. And this quote, of course, comes from the the famed Apollo 13 mission as they were en route to the moon. They were on their way for a lunar landing on April 13th, 1970. There was an explosion outside the spacecraft as they were on their way. And, you know, a little bit of chaos ensued, a little bit of, you know, uncertainty. And then you hear the voice of the astronaut Jim Lovell calmly report to mission control. And really a serious understatement of the situation. Houston, we had a problem. And boy, did they. As it turned out, there was an explosion on the, uh, in some part of the spacecraft that crippled the, the spacecraft's ability to maneuver. It crippled their ability to control the spacecraft so that it would function the way that they needed it to, not only to land on the moon, but even to come back to the Earth. And it looked as though these astronauts on board the Apollo 13 were just, you know, going to float out into space. Never be seen again. The first step to finding a solution to their situation was figuring out what the problem was. What was that sound? What exactly happened? And in our text, as Nehemiah is surveying the city, as he is taking inventory of the people of God and looking out upon the activities taking place before him, he is discovering that there is a problem. Verse 15 and 16, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in the sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, and figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Verse 16 talks about the men of Tyre, that they sold things on the Sabbath day. So Nehemiah looks out over the city. He looks out over the activities of the children of Israel. And he is taken aback by what he sees. He is shocked to see that in the short time that he has been away, this people that had committed themselves to honoring God and keeping the Sabbath, here they are, no longer honoring God, no longer keeping the Sabbath. They are treating the Sabbath as if it's just any other day. They're out working in the fields. They're out tending to the livestock. They're out buying and selling. The merchants from pagan cities around are coming into the city and selling their wares. All on the Sabbath day. They had basically reached the point where they were treating the Sabbath like it was any other day. Business as usual. The problem with that is found in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day... No one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. 
The, ch- the problem is that the behavior that the children of Israel are engaging in is a direct violation of God's very clear commands. And this is not just any command. This, isn't, this, is, this is one of the Ten Commandments. This isn't, you know, don't boil the kid in its mother's goat milk. I mean, if you, you break that commandment, you know, I mean. But this is one of the Ten Commandments. God explicitly commanded the children of Israel to keep the Sabbath. This wasn't a suggestion. This wasn't a recommendation. This wasn't something just to help their mental health. This was a direct commandment from God. And the children of Israel were treating it like a suggestion. Treating it like it was just a recommendation. And again, 12 years prior to this, these same people had made a pledge and a commitment that they would not do the very thing that they're doing. Nehemiah 10 verse 31 says, We also promise that if the people of the land should bring any merchandise or grain to be sold on the Sabbath or any other holy day, we will refuse to buy it. Every seventh year we will let our land rest and we will cancel all debts owed to us. This was the commitment they had made 12 years ago. And now here they are violating the very commitment and pledge that they had made to God. And as I was thinking about this and just pondering the Sabbath, you know, the whole point of the Sabbath is an issue of priority. It's an issue of putting God first. It's an issue of honoring God and trusting God to provide and seeking God before everything else. And when God no longer holds a place of priority in your heart, the next logical step is you begin to allow those things that you dedicate to God to just fall by the wayside. In Christianity, the way this usually begins to play out is people begin to lose interest in church. Sunday is no longer a day that you look forward to and you get excited about because you get to go to church twice. You get to be in the presence of God amongst the people of God and hear the word of God twice in the same day. Suddenly you begin to look at it as an inconvenience. You begin to look at it as something that's just kind of getting in the way of what you would rather be doing. Many times people begin to pursue things that start to pull them away from church. And they don't feel the compulsion to guard that time. They don't feel the inner witness telling them to guard that time that you have dedicated and set aside for God. You know, this is why church attendance is so important. It's an indicator of spiritual well-being. It's not that coming to church saves you. It's not that it somehow makes you right, but you know, it does reveal the condition of your heart. And I'm not saying that you miss a church service, you're backslidden. Understand, that's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is an issue of the heart where the priority of God is beginning to fall. And now it's not a problem if something else gets in the way. It's not a problem if something else comes up. Oh, yeah, no big deal. In our text, the children of Israel had rapidly departed from their commitment to honor the Sabbath. And to keep it holy as a day that was set apart to seek God 
and to honor God. And now they're just simply out doing business as usual without a second thought. And Nehemiah sees this transpiring and life, you know, in their minds just continuing as if nothing is wrong. And Nehemiah refuses to just let this go without dealing with it. Nehemiah goes to the leaders and he confronts them. Verse 17 and 18 in our text says, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah confronts them. Nehemiah says, what are you doing? Don't you understand you're bringing judgment upon us again? This is why we were exiled for 70 years. We refused to honor the Sabbath. And now you're, you're encouraging and allowing the people to do it again without even challenging it. See, the first step to getting right was they needed to recognize that there's a problem. And Nehemiah begins to deal with the people. He begins to confront them about this problem and understand that he was confronting them not with his opinion. He was not coming at them with his belief and his idea. He was coming at them with the commandments from God. He was coming with the word of God and saying, here is the standard. And if you do not uphold this standard, you're bringing judgment. And this is how God deals with us. This is how God begins to work in our lives as he begins to put his finger on areas of our lives that aren't right. This is what conviction is all about as God begins to make you squirm a little bit. He begins to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because there's an area of your life that's not right. And understand, he doesn't do that to just make you feel bad. He does that because he's trying to show you we can change this. This is a problem, but we can deal with this. But in order to deal with it, you have to first realize that it's a problem. Basically, what we're talking about here is repentance. God deals with us. God shows us the problem so that we can repent. Repentance is not a bad word. Repentance is a very good word. And really all it means is that we are aligning our will with God's. We're saying, you know what, I used to believe this, but I no longer believe that way. Instead, I choose to align my belief with what God says. I used to live this way, but I no longer live this way. I have aligned my lifestyle with what God says. That's repentance. I want to look next at shutting the gates. Verse 19. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. So after confronting the people about the reality of their problem, the reality of their violation of God's commandments, Nehemiah begins to take action to prevent the children of Israel from continuing down this road. Nehemiah 
His commandment is that the gates of the city would be shut as soon as the Sabbath began. And that they would not be uh, allowed to be led into this situation of temptation. See, again, in those days, you had a wall built around a city that was to protect it. And the only way in and out was through the gates. So this is how the merchants were coming in. Nehemiah had already dealt with the people of God. He had already dealt with the children of Israel. They were already understanding that they needed to stop working and doing all that they were doing on the Sabbath. But there was also this issue of these merchants coming into the city from, the, from Tyre to, sell, to buy and to sell. So Nehemiah, understanding the temptation that that would be, takes the next logical step to prevent this situation. And what Nehemiah said is, okay, if these merchants from Tyre are coming in through the gates, then just shut the gates and don't open them. Don't let them come in. Once we get to the Sabbath, close the gates and that's it. Keep them closed until after the Sabbath. And how many know that's good practical advice? Shut the gates. What are you battling in your life? What area of life are you struggling to keep right before God? Well, this advice right here might help you. Maybe there's some gates you need to shut. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 through 27 says, My child, pay attention to what I say. Listen carefully to my words. Don't lose sight of them. Let them penetrate deep into your heart. For they bring life to those who find them and healing to their whole body. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Avoid all perverse talk. Stay away from corrupt speech. Look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. So the Bible tells us very clearly here, that we need to guard our heart. And it speaks about gates. And there are four gates that I want to talk about that are all mentioned in this text in Proverbs 4. The first is the tongue gate or the mouth gate, dealing with what you say, the words you speak. And then we have the ear gate, speaking about what you hear and listen to. And then the eye gate, what are you looking at? And then the feet gate, where are you going? And think about all of these gates have a profound impact and influence on your heart, on your soul. That's what this scripture in Proverbs 4 is talking about. Keep your heart or guard your heart with all diligence. And all four of these areas are, of life are mentioned in this text. What you hear and listen to, what you say, what you look at, and where you go. So what kind of words are passing through your mouth gate? What kind of things are you speaking and saying about others, about yourself? You know, sometimes we speak the worst words about ourselves. What are you speaking about God, about the promises of God? How many would agree sometimes we'd be a lot better off if we would just shut that gate? 
What kind of things are passing through your ear gate? What are you listening to? Does it glorify God? Is it something that is edifying you, that is strengthening you, that is helping you, encouraging you? Or is it something that is tearing you down? Something that is causing you to stumble? What are you listening to? Sometimes that gate should just be shut. What's passing through your eye gate? What are you looking at? If there are things passing through your eye gate that are hurting you, shut the gate. And I don't just mean just close your eyes. When I was in, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade maybe, I had one of those real, you know, kind of adolescent crushes. And so this girl was a little bit older than me. And I don't know, I don't know where I came up with this idea, but I said, you know what? If I can walk from this spot on the driveway around the sidewalk and up to the front door with my eyes closed, she's going to love me forever. I mean, where does that come from? But I believed it, and I was going to try it. And I'm walking around this curve, and I ran square into the corner of a brick pillar. Had a giant swollen red spot right across my forehead and my cheek. And that one was kind of hard to explain. So I don't just mean close your eyes and try to go through life, but think about what you're looking at. What are you letting pass through your eyes into your heart? How about your feet gate? Where are you going? Are you going places and involving yourself in things that are harmful to your spiritual well-being? It might be a good idea then to shut that gate, if so. Nehemiah took one look at what was happening in Jerusalem, and he said, you know what? I know what to do about this. Shut the gate. Don't let those merchants come in here on the Sabbath. And this reveals a very simple next step in this blueprint for lasting change is take the practical steps that you can to bring victory. Nehemiah evaluated this situation. He took a look at what was happening. He said, you know, I know a very simple thing we can do that will help. Shut the gates. Don't let them in. Keep them away. If you're finding yourself struggling in some area of your life, you recognize that it's a problem. You want to change. You're crying out to God. You're answering all. You're, you're seeking change. For some of you, the answer is right here. There's a very practical thing you can do. There's some gates you could shut. You can cut off exposure to some things that you may be looking at, that you may be listening to, places you may be going. If you shut that gate, you'll see victory. Look at verse 20, something interesting here. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Isn't that just like the stinking devil? I mean, Nehemiah shuts the gates. He makes the stand. He says, you're not coming in here. But what did they do? They just camped outside the gate. Hey, can we come in? And they didn't just turn and go away. They, they camped out and stayed there. And they did that two Sabbaths in a row. They're still hanging around trying to get in. Anyone ever been there? You make good decisions. 
You're trying to see breakthrough. You decide you're going to make it to morning prayer. You set your alarm, and then AT&T has a nationwide outage, and your phone doesn't work. You set out to fast, and then someone brings donuts. It's not an accident. The devil doesn't play fair. The devil's not impressed when you start trying to do right and live for God. You can mark it down as soon as you try to shut some gates. As soon as you try to cut things off, they'll still be hanging around. They're still hanging around out there, just waiting for you to let them in. And Nehemiah dealt with this situation in two ways. First, he kept the gate shut. He didn't open it. He didn't say, oh, you guys are, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I guess if you came, we'll go ahead and let you in since you're here anyway. He kept the gate shut. Second thing he did is he made a stand against them. And he commanded them to leave. Verse 21. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah refused to just sit back and allow this. Nehemiah made a stand against this. And it worked. And I think it's because Nehemiah is one intense dude. Listen to how he dealt with the children of Israel. Remember, there's three problems I told you that he's dealing with. The Sabbath problem that we're talking about. And then there was the tithe problem, and then there was the intermarriage problem. Listen to how he dealt with the intermarriage problem. Nehemiah 13, 25. So I confronted these parents and cursed them and punched a few of them and knocked them around and pulled out their hair. And they vowed before God that they would not let their children intermarry with non-Jews. I bet they did. This dude meant business. So I think when these guys from Tyre saw Nehemiah leaning over the wall and say, you guys come again, I'm going to lay hands on you. Okay, dude. <laughs> I got it. Now, I'm not saying we need to start beating people and pulling out hair, but the point is Nehemiah was willing to do what it took to make a stand against sin, and he meant business. He wasn't playing around with sin. And he made a stand. I want to close by talking about guarding the gates. Verse 22. I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. See, the next thing Nehemiah does is make it clear that in order to maintain the standard of obedience, there needs to be a long-term plan. There needs to be some guards that will set, be set at this gate to watch it and to protect it. In other words, just because you made a good decision one or two times, that doesn't mean it's automatic. And he makes it clear to them that they're going to have to set some guards and they will have to be diligent. If they're going to see lasting change. And this is good advice for you and I as well. In order to see lasting change in any area of life, it's going to require not only acknowledging the problem, not only repentance, not only doing the things that we can, the practical steps we can take, but it's going to take long-term planning and diligence to guard those gates. 
So let's look at, exa- at Nehemiah's instructions to those people that would be guarding the gates. First, he said to them, I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves. And this speaks about two important truths. Number one, the need for cleansing. In order for the Levites to be qualified and capable of guarding the gates, they first needed to be clean, cleaned, cleansed, cleansed. That's the word. Why? Because they were unclean. They were guilty. They were part of the problem. Not only because they weren't honoring the Sabbath, but also because they weren't fulfilling their God-ordained role and function in society. So they needed to be cleansed. This speaks about the condition of their heart. They first needed to get right with God before they could be used in this way. And then the second thing this speaks about is standards. The fact that Nehemiah is challenging them and saying, you guys are unclean and you need to get clean first. The reason he is able to say that is because there are standards of conduct and behavior that they were not living up to. So this clearly demonstrates that there is an accountability to standards that does not originate with us. There is a standard of right and wrong that originates with God. And in order to be useful in God's kingdom, we have to align ourselves with those standards. In order for them to be effective guards of the gates, they needed to recognize those standards that they were trying to protect. You know, it'd be difficult to spot counterfeit money if you don't know what the real thing looks like. Right? That's the best defense against counterfeit money is learn what the real thing looks like. And then you can spot the fakes. And in order for them to effectively guard the gate, they needed to understand what standards they're trying to protect. What standard they're trying to uphold. The second thing he says to them is that they should go and guard the gates and sanctify the Sabbath. They physically needed to go and guard these gates. And the explicit purpose that they were being sent was to prevent compromise. And again, this was going to require diligence. This was going to require that they would have to guard these gates continually. This wasn't just a once or twice thing. This was to be an ongoing thing that they understood there was a danger here. They had failed before, and if they were not diligent to protect and guard, they would fail again. And if we're going to see victory in the various areas of life that we want to see God move, there has to be a willingness to be diligent to guard and protect those areas. Psalm 39.1 says, I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. Psalm 141.3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Luke 11.34 and 5, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. All these scriptures are speaking about the gates we had talked about, the ear gate, the eye gate, the mouth gate, and the fact that we need to guard those. So what area of life are you seeking change in? 
What area of life are you wanting to see God move and help you? And this isn't always sin. This isn't always an an issue of sin. Sometimes God puts his finger on areas where he just wants to bring more maturity. Where he just wants to bring greater development of character. Greater degrees of faith and trust and hope. So this isn't always just sin. But this is just simply God putting his finger on an area that he wants to bring change. And the blueprint we see in our text is very clear and very practical. First, we recognize we have a problem. This is what leads to repentance. This is what leads to change. This is what invites God to get involved in our situation. This is, you know, the change I'm talking about is not something we can do in and of ourselves. We don't have what it takes. But what repentance does is repentance acknowledges our failure and invites God to get involved and help us. And that's what we need. Second, we must take whatever practical steps we can and shut the gate. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And that's exactly what this scripture speaks about, laying aside the weights. There are practical things that we can do that will help us to live for God. And if we will take those steps, we'll see progress. And then the third thing is guarding the gates of life, because influence comes through those gates. I want to close with a scripture, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. See, this means that God will make up the difference. When we follow these steps, when we invite God into the situation, we do everything that we can. We take all the practical steps that we can, do everything that we know to do, and we still fall short, which inevitably we will, because the Christian life is a supernatural life. It is a life that we're called to live beyond our own means. But when we do everything that we can and we still come up short, we still come up weak, this scripture tells us that God says that's where my strength will kick in. My grace is sufficient for you. Wherever you find yourself, whatever the need is, God says I will make up the difference. If you will do what you can, God says I'll take care of the rest. And in those areas where we seem weak, God can show himself strong. Thank God for that. Let's bow our heads tonight. Every head bowed, every eye closed. In reverence to God, just for a moment. Hallelujah. I spoke about the need for change. The greatest need for change that we have is the result of sin. The Bible says that every single human being has fallen short of God's glory. We're all guilty. Every single one of us is born with a sinful nature. 
We are born with a nature that causes us to reject God, to reject His Word, to reject His authority, and to desire to just live however we want to live. That's called sin. And the Bible says the price, the wages of sin is death. But thank God, Jesus Christ came and died on a cross so that you wouldn't have to pay that price. But the only way you can receive that solution for your life is what we talked about tonight, repentance. You must make a decision to repent of your sin, to repent of a sinful lifestyle. You must choose to say, I will no longer live the way I want to live. I will no longer live a lifestyle of disobedience to God. Instead, I choose to live the way God says to live. I change my mind. I change my belief. And I choose to believe what God says. If you want to do that tonight, you're not saved. You've not been born again, but God is speaking to you right now. God is dealing with you. God is showing you that your heart is not right with him. But you want to make a decision tonight to say, I want that to change. I want to be right with God. I want to be forgiven of my sin, and I want to choose to live for Jesus tonight. If that's you, raise your hand, and we'll pray with you. Anyone here? Not saved? Or perhaps backslidden? You were saved at one time, but you're away from God now. Your heart is not right. You're no longer living a lifestyle that would please God. And you say, you know what? I want, I want to get my heart right tonight. Raise your hand. We'll pray with you tonight. Hallelujah. Praise God. Why don't we stand to our feet? These altars are open if you want to come. Spend some time seeking God. I encourage you to do that as we sing and worship God tonight.